I think we're oiled and ready to go. How about you? Are you oiled already? Yes. <laughs> it's half past 11. No, you know, as in... No, I know what oiled means. Santan cream and that kind of thing. Have you ever done that thing? There's, there's um, a, a, a guy in our, in our band called Mike Hammond who makes the I most... I know him. You know Mike, of course you yes. do. We've played at a function of yours, didn't I've we? Se- yeah, and I've seen a function. It was a birthday, and thanks very much. And also... Whose and birthday was it? Mine. Which birthday was it? Fifth. No, it wasn't that long ago. Forty. No, fifty. No, it can't have been. It must have been longer ago than that. How old are you now? Thirty-four. Yeah, no, it, it genuinely wasn't your fiftieth. I think it must think have been it your was. F- or fortieth. I think it was your fortieth. No, it would have been fiftieth. No, I don't think it was because we had to go. We we we. we anyway, Mike. Hammond. Whatever, Mike, Mike Hammond. So Mike Hammond makes a particularly mean martini, which is known as a Mike Teeny. And um, it's, you know... <laughs> not a mankini. It's like, a, not a mankini. It's like, you know, pangalactic goggle blasters, <laughs> you know, two of these and you can perform surgery. But Mike always does the thing when, you know, when he's pulled it and he presents it to you and says, gentlemen, start your engines. <laughs> Very good. It's probably funny if you've had a couple. Well, oh. you haven't had a couple yet, but then, you know, literally the minute the Mike Teeny hits your mouth... Suddenly the world is a better place. Now, Dan has sent us an email because last week you made a reference to a... I think you were as vague as possible about which screening room you might have been talking about. Okay, But about the noise of the building work which is happening nearby. Yes. And Dan says on an email, I work very close to this in London. And in last week's podcast, you referred to the drilling that occasionally interrupts his viewing pleasure when he's watching a projection in there. I'm confronted with this chorus of metal on concrete every morning and recorded it from my window in a passive-aggressive act of defiance (laughs) after a particularly irritating week of it. So here I am attaching it. So this, for the first time ever, a clip of drilling from London's Soho area where Mark likes to go and have a a projection every now and again. Trying to watch a film. Back off. <laughs> Oi. I've got Kermit in here. He's trying to watch... <laughs> Go to Broadwick Street. That's great. Meanwhile, the new Terence Malick is going, I love water and air. It moves with the snow. People do send us the most crazy stuff. We've never <laughs> been sent drilling before. That's great stuff. Um, I feel like I'm there. There's a conundrum here, but it's probably because I'm thick. Anyway, Rob in Rygate. I have a witter confession to make. After working for 30 years in the banking industry, I have recently seen the light and joined a programme called Now Teach to transition into teaching. I've heard about it. This September, I will uh, embark on my new career straight into the deep end, teaching geography to state secondary school pupils in South London. Well, good for you, Rob. Those listeners who already have access to the teacher's transept area of the church will know that one of the minimum entry requirements to teaching is to pass the National Literacy Skills Test. Okay, I didn't know that, but then I have no experience of teaching at all. So this morning, I found myself in a lovely corner of Croydon, a phrase I haven't seen (laughs) written down before, settling down to the spelling section of the aforementioned test, dutifully listening to the words that I was required to spell. And suddenly, there it was at question two. Spell dilemma. But hang on. It's an oral test. Oh, no, thank you. Sorry, I thought it was... <laughs> surely if it's... Listening carefully, so there it is. Uh, no, it's, uh, so, yes, 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 yes. I was immediately gripped by panic. N or no N? Should I stay true to the teachings of the church or take the heretic route? Could I even slip in a quick hello to Jason within the comprehension section? I confess I opted for the more established I. Ron Howard spelling, but now 
feel a little bit shameful. Please report I passed the test and so continue on my teaching journey and we'll look forward to having a few more weeks in the summers ahead of the, uh, ahead of the cruise. Everyone should have their tickets and cabin allocation, by the way. For the cruise, no, not not everyone has their cabin allocations. Oh, is that right? Yeah, no, everyone has their tickets, but there is, it's this weird kind of second round thing. Is you know that there are because if you remember, there was the business last year, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, which we referred to as the unpleasantness. Yes. So now tickets An are allocated, and then cab yes, and then cabins are allocated just before the crew in order to prevent what happened last year. Yes. So there is that new section where basically it's a free-for-all. It's like some airlines where they go, you haven't got any reservations, just sit where you want. And so you take the cabin that's nearest to you. It's like an anarchist approach. You just, whatever's there, help yourself. Did I ever tell you about my exciting time getting on an airplane from Kiev? Ever tell you this? Haven't you put it in a book? I have put it in a book. I've probably read it there. But but, but by all means, refresh my memory of this anecdote. Late 1980s, flying from Kiev to Moscow, and um were you a spy got to, i was a spy yes got to the airport firstly had had the whole business about wanted to buy the ticket couldn't buy the ticket said well, you know i need a ticket yet but i i need to buy it yet and then my translator nudged me and said you got to bribe him so i said oh okay fine so then i put five dollars on the thing and said i'd like a ticket and he said fine and he sold me the ticket me and nigel floyd and he sold me and nigel floyd two tickets and we both got two tickets i've still got it at home and it says flight number blank Seat number, blank. Destination, blank. And you're all then put into a holding pen, and I'm not making this up. And then the plane comes onto the tarmac, and then they open the doors, and there is what can only be described as a stampede, whilst everybody runs for the plane. Everybody just finds whatever seats they can, and the plane then took off with people standing up. Standing up? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Exactly. Room for two more on top, sir. Wow, that sounds... Well, we're going to do exactly the same on the cruise. We're going to line everybody up and then we'll say there are six cabins left. There are 97 of you. Go. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Survival of the fittest. Here's your ticket. Cabin, blank. Destination, Just blank. share. Share with a friend. Uh, Alison Powell. Dear Woody and Buzz, whilst travelling the long four hours coming back from seeing my parents with tired, hyper kids, my husband, as in she's got the kids, not the parents... So they got the tired. Sorry, do, so do it again. Whilst travelling the long four hours, coming yeah. back from seeing my parents yes. with tired yet hyper kids, my husband has always put on your podcast. Yes. He knows I cannot complain as he's doing the driving and I pretend to go to sleep. Listening to a letter asking your good selves how to convert someone's mum, I laughed at your suggestion to simply convert through continued play annoyance. Yes. Who would be so easily swayed, I thought. Oh, wait, says Alison. Me. Very good. Thinking back, I am not sure when I went from pretending not to listen to actively listening and commenting to now writing in. My husband, a very devoted and avid part of your congregation, Chris Powell, by the way, will be just too pleased with himself now. Yours, an unexpected yet totally converted member of the church. See, it's it gets you in the end. That's another interesting grammatical thing. So, you know, you know the. Is this fra- going to be another tale from one of your books? No, no, it's a, it's a genuine question. Mm-hmm. You know the phrase, um, you know, uh, if you need something, I'll be only too pleased to help you. Okay. Yes. Right. Fine. So there was. I was in a restaurant once in Manchester, um, in the probably in the nineteen eighties because everything with the Comset Angels uh, the with the Comset Angels in the, the studio at the table next. Morrissey and Mar over there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And Frank Sidebottom's Oh Blimey Big Band with John Ronson on keyboards were down the way. Anyway. 
I opened the menu and inside the menu, it said, you know, if you have any special requests, please ask for the manager who will be too pleased to help you. And I found this hysterically funny because I thought the idea of the manager being too pleased to help you. I'm sorry, I'd love to help you, but I'm just too pleased. And then my the person I was with, I think it was Charlie, said, well, that's... What the Charlie? Fr- Charlie said, that's the... Blimey Charlie. Said, that's the phrase, too pleased. I said, no, the phrase is only too pleased to help you. He'll be only too pleased to help correct. you. You are correct. Okay. But if you... Is it also the phrase... Is it legitimate to say, please ask the manager, he'll be too pleased to help you? Because doesn't, if you say he says, be too pleased to help you, it means it sounds like he can't help you because he's he just... absolutely won't be helping you. Fine, so I am, so I wasn't wrong. No, you're absolutely right. Great, so it's only, let, only, only 30 years to clear that up, but that's great. What? It occurs to me that the dilemma thing might have made absolutely no sense if, if you have joined us in the last, say, I don't know, 10 years. Where have you been? Because it relates to the fact that, coincidentally, Mark and I both... Uh, Thought that you spelt dilemma M A. We don't both think. We both were taught that that's how you spell that's dilemma. Right. And and we chase this out, and it turns out there is a, a substantial number of people who also think that. However, we are wrong, and there is no, hang on. one are, way. No, no, no. Are we actually wrong? Yes, we are wrong. There's only one way of spelling it, which is double M A. But some people were taught due to a misprint in a textbook that it was M N A. But you cannot spell dilemma dilemma. Hang on. I'm sorry. I'm. I was I was party to these conversations. Yeah. Was the the end result was that it's actually a, it's due to a misprint in a textbook, something like that. It was chased back to a textbook, and so a whole bunch of people. There'll be some people now going, "Oh yeah, I spell dilemma with an N," but it is wrong, and every single every single dictionary that you look at will have it double M A. But we were. I'm sorry. I'm not. No, I'm not this is not the fun. This is not funny. It was I, false spelling. But we were taught it. Doesn't make it right. No, I'm well. No, but but, but an entire need- generation of people were taught. That dilemma, they were wrong. It doesn't make any difference. If you're taught something that's wrong, as I think we've learned, then you have to go to a revisionist school and learn <laughs> and be re-educated. Way. I'd be only too pleased to <laughs> you, you'd be, you'd be to too, re-educate. I am. I'm sorry. I'm too pleased to spell it yeah. dilemma. Well, you can't spell it with an N. There's no N in dilemma. I th- I'm not sure that that was the conclusion. I thought that no. I think the conclusion was that it was an arcane spelling. No. Archaic spelling? Nope. Whichever. An arcade fire spelling? Nope. Unfortunately, we were wrong and we need to learn our lessons. Oh, like we do when Robin sends us on a course. It was fake spelling and we need to now acknowledge that it was sad. (laughs) (laughs) Need to get with the programme. Yeah. Anyway, on with our much shortened show, which, and then if there's anything we miss out, we'll pick up at the back end. Mrs. I'm sorry. I was I was actually leaving that alone, and then then you then spoiled it for everybody. Yes. Hello, Mark. How are you? Good afternoon. Why were you giving me dirty looks? No, it's just it was a, it was a look of uh, uh, oh oh that was your amazing performance as you. I don't know if the uh, the uh, live streamers got to see you dash for your jacket seconds before we went on air. You realised that you were about to start the radio program without your jacket on. Well, that wouldn't be cricket at all. Well, apparently not. It's almost, you can't do, you have to have your jacket on and a pencil in your hand. Yes. Otherwise, nothing is possible. I have three pens here. We have a shortened programme because of uh, the Wimbledon coverage, so we will squeeze... Let's not waste it with nonsense about Uh, jackets and pens. Listen, if we can't waste it with nonsense, what else are we going to do? We have some reviews and we have Sophia Coppola talking about her new movie, which is The Beguiled. Uh, Plus, a concern from someone who I think wants to be anonymous... Uh, but you're I, not going to let them. I would welcome your uh, your views on this. For reasons that will be apparent, anonymity is preferred. Last week I was travelling long haul for work with a colleague. 
I am senior to him in both age and status, and so, despite proximity during a 13-hour flight, side by side, was keen to maintain dignity at all times. Right? <laughs> dignity. The Always dignity. The difficulty arose while I was watching The Gifted and he was watching Chips. <laughs> right. Which is an interesting pair of films. Yes. Um, the the nature of the gifted combined with an attack of Arles uh, and me being homesick and my three children who were close in age to Mary in the film meant that I got a bit weepy in one of these sad bits. Initially, I thought I would get away with it by shielding my eyes casually from my colleague, but then it got worse. In you fact, say it is gifted without... A de- I've just checked it. It is without a definite article. Gifted. Oh, it's just gifted. I gifted. apologise. There is a film called The Gift, but that's a different thing. Gifted. In fact, the weepy turned into super weepy and snotty, and the cabin crew noticed. They then started flocking around with wet towels and tissues. Such was the state I was in. At this point, I felt I lost the right to any superiority. I I take it back, there's another film called The Gifted, which he's probably talking about. Well, it's a she, I do believe. She, um, which she's probably talking about. I feel as though I might have lost... Oh, no, that's a TV series. (laughs) ...momentum of this... (laughs) Somewhat. I'm just checking because these things are important. Carry on. While you lock thing, look things up. No, but... It, it, it. My colleague didn't appear to notice, but I think we can be sure that Chips is not so engrossing as to distract from your boss's boss's boss being mopped <laughs> up by three cabin crew. <laughs> I think he was embarrassed. Very good. Um, here's the other side of ours, though. The underreported side of ours, before we get to the box office top ten, by the way, Sophia Coppola after 12.30... Dear Fiddler and Roof said... It sounded like you said severe Coppola. It's like mild mild Nolan, but severe Coppola. That's what we're getting. Uh, Arles is, of course, altitude... Adjusted. Adjusted. Lacrimosity syndrome. Thank you. However, not in this email. Oh, I see. Not for this email. Not for this email. Okay. There's been a lot about Arles recently on your show, but I wondered if any other listeners have experienced its sister condition. Also confusingly called Arles, but where the L stands for laughter. I have found on more than one occasion films are a great deal funnier Funnier. when watched from a high altitude. For example, I vividly remember watching mediocre at best Ben Stiller comedy Along Came Polly on a flight many years ago, being absolutely beside myself with mirth. What is more, when I briefly took off my headphones for a call of nature, it was clear that everybody else who was watching the film was in a similar position. Gales of laughter echoed up and down the plane, many people being so caught up in the film's hilarity that they spilt what few peanuts they'd been given in that small (laughs) Very good, well done for working that joke in. It would be interesting to see how many films that currently fail the Six Laugh Test would pass if viewed altitude. I propose we put together an experiment whereby a group of Wittertainees watch Snatched, Jack and Jill and Bad Grandpa at 20,000 feet and see if they raise a titter, perhaps with a control group watching the same films on the ground like in that Darren Brown programme. Anyway, Will Collinson is suggesting that. I've never noticed films be funnier, but I, it, does, it does make sense. If, you're, if your emotions are all messed up, then maybe Arles can affect you in that way. Dirty Grandpa. And um, I think that my child one watched Bride Wars all the way through on a plane, enjoying it enormously, and then at the end turned to me, looked at me and went, you know nothing. How, how satisfying I know. that must be. Yeah, exactly. Box office top ten. At ten is Pirates of the Caribbean, Salazar's Revenge. Anything else to say? I don't think Rather? so. And also for nine and eight, there are two films in the top ten which I haven't seen this week. One because it wasn't press screen, which was nine and eight because I was off that week. And you know what? I haven't caught up with it because I can't be bothered. Well, nine is mom. Yes. So as fortunately, some other uh, listeners have been doing your hard work for you. Thank you. And Katrina Cat sends this from our Facebook page. 
Uh, Mom uh, focuses on matters which the Bollywood industry are seldom dominated by and it makes a nice change for them to release a film associated with the mysteries and dangers of life, together fuelled with complex puzzles and riddles to unravel within the movie instead of the melodrama everyone usually associates uh, Bollywood with. Uh, Bodhi Sarkar in Aberdeen. Revenge thrillers tend to range from Tarantino's tongue-in-cheek style exploitation to more disquieting efforts from from Korean auteur Park Chan-wook. Mom strives to combine elements from both ends of the spectrum but struggles to divine its own identity. The film events eerily echo the 2012 Delhi gang rape case, even down to the manner of abduction and age range of the assailants. What should have been a provocative study that exposes the social conditions and values of Indian society that made such a horrific incident possible turned out to be an overly stylized and superficial revenge flick. Okay, And worth saying once again that, you know, there there was a brief period in which an awful lot of Bollywood films did get press screened um, when the distributors said, but that hasn't happened for a long time. And we, we, you know, look forward to the period when that does happen again. I know there are very good reasons for it, distribution reasons for it, but it would be great to have them back on the regular screening programme. So the other film that you mentioned at number eight is The House. Which I really can't be bothered to go and see. Now, it comes at night, is it number seven? Which I liked very much. I, there's been a, there is a warning that comes with me liking it, which is... As I said at the time, don't go expecting the trailer because the trailer sells it as a particular kind of movie. Obviously, because you know when you you make a trailer for something, you, you know you want to give it the sort of the, you know most widely saleable appearance, and the, the trailer makes it look like an absolute nuts and bolts, quiet, quiet bang, you know, scary movie. It's not. It's something completely different to that. It's much more tonally in line with The Witch, which similarly suffered from a misleading trailer campaign. Is, is, there a mis- is the title not helpful? It comes at night. Well, it just makes it sound as though it is nuts and bolts horror. No. Well, of course, the interesting thing is that you never, you're never quite sure what it is that comes at night. Um, and, I mean, I like the title because I think the title has something of that that sense of mystery which the whole film itself has. The other film I was going to compare it to was the the film The Survivalist, um, the Irish movie, which is really, really, really great. But it's a you know it's post apocalyptic thriller. There has been an outbreak of a virus. There is a family holed up in a remote uh, house in the woods, and all the doors are locked, and they never go out at night because it comes at night. And then they have to decide whether or not to join forces with another family. And what the film's really about is the way in which people turn on each other, the way in which people suspect each other, the way in which, in the absence of actual facts, alternative facts start to infect the way that we look at the world with disastrous consequences. So you're not, but by the time you get to the end of the film, you're still not quite sure what it is that comes at night. No, but what you are sure is that... It could be indigestion. Is that ma- no, what you are sure is that mankind's capacity for paranoid destruction is infinite. Um, thanks for it. <laughs> thanks for that. So it's a cheery. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, uh, it's an upbeat song. There's a big song and dance number at the end. Rachel Brock says, "I didn't find it as disturbing or thought provoking as other films okay. of this type, like Kill List, Children of Men, The Mist, and so on." Oh, Kill List. Well, okay, that's the an interesting. Performance is a fine score and atmosphere too, but the supernatural elements are not sufficient to cover the plot holes in the script or the faulty logic of the decisions made by the characters in the context. Of I don't the- think there are supernatural elements. There are dream sequences, or most peculiar, there are sequences which may be dreams, may be memories, may be hallucinations. I don't think I don't think anything in it is or at least I didn't interpret anything in it as being supernatural. Paul, otherworldly, eerie, certainly. Paul Stagg, um, sat in my car post-viewing of It Comes at Night and I've been here for 10 minutes just staring out of the window, completely drained and just trying to come back to reality. The film is yeah, excellent. Great. I'm a big fan of horror, small 
small well, cast, one room type flicks and general who can you trust type affairs. Yeah. Night, which he uses throughout this email, night is the is his shorthand, uh, is scary, creepy, heartbreaking, thought provoking, and one of the best horrors in inverted commas I've seen in ages, and I'm glad I've experienced it. But people left midway. Uh, through the film, and I'm now looking at reviews and people just hate this movie and I don't understand it. I think that the people who really don't like it are people who have be, who have gone assuming it to be something else. There's a very similar thing happened with The Witch that people who, who were looking for that kind of film really loved what Robert Eggers did with it. But there is a problem, which is that if you go expecting... You know, people are now very, very attuned to this particular kind of horror movie, Annabelle. It's, it's not that. It's... It's what I think of as as an old school horror movie. It's about something. It's a, it's you know very much like like uh, the themes of Night of the Living Dead. It's a, it's a film about society falling apart and tearing itself apart. Jolly good. Um, <laughs> All eyes on me is at number six, which is a disappointment. I mean, for a number of reasons, not least because there is an interesting story in there, and this film doesn't get very close to it, despite the, a couple of a couple of impressive performances. It's it it feels very very by numbers. Uh, so Wonder Woman's at number five. It's just which is hanging on in it there is. brilliantly, and uh, I mean it's re- it's got real staying power. I think this is very very impressive. It now uh, according to this, it's in its sixth week, uh, still there at number five, still continuing to find an audience. I did a thing at the BFI on Monday. Which Lindy Hemming, who's the costume designer, worked with Nolan, uh, who I know you're interviewing. Um, on Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan. Yes. Well, Chris to you, Chris baby to you, but Mr. Nolan to me. And she was fantastic and talking about uh, the Wonder Woman costumes and the, you know, and and just about how thrilled she was at how how much the movie has found its audience and what a pleasure it is to watch and what a pleasure it is to watch with an audience and hear people enjoying it in that way. I uh, think it's great. So the box office top ten had Wonder Woman at go. five and Transformers The Last Night number four. Mm-hmm. Baby Driver number three. So Went ba- to see it again last night. Oh, did you? So is that yeah. second time for you? Yes, yeah, second time. And did it just... Yes, because you do pick up on... It's the subtle bits of choreography within each individual scene that some I think you missed... Which was the bit that you, that you picked up on the second time? Go on, so, I, I just love this P- film. Particularly, I think it's the Hocus Pocus by, by Focus, Focus sequence where, on uh, foot. where John Hamm, basically every gunshot is timed to perfection to cer- certain beats in the Hocus Pocus track. As it is with tequila as well. Yeah, I mean, there's, the, all, the, there's the, all... The tequila sequence is brilliant. Some things have, uh, you notice first time, and I and I missed others. Um, so Child 2 went to see it and loved it and came back and hadn't seen the Mint Royale Blue Song video. And I said, OK, you have to see the Mint Royale Blue Song video. So I showed it to him from TV. He went, what? That's, that's like the film. It's like that. I said, yeah, exactly. That's the whole idea. Edgar Wright had this idea. And then he thought he'd blown it by doing it in this, in this you know, uh, pop music video. And then, of course, actually with the whole film explores that. I mean, I, I except three times and I've every time I've just enjoyed it more. And you're right. You see more in it the second and third time around because as just as a piece of filmmaking, there's the skill of filmmaking involved in it is so true. It is like watching a really, you know, the choreography in it is probably better than the choreography in La La Land. Yeah, well, you, and that is the way you think of it as a musical. Go see it as a musical because that's exactly the way, it is. The way it's been. Yeah. Baby Drives number three, Despicable Me three is at number two. I have evidently laughed at this more than a lot of people. As I said before, at the very beginning, um, you know, I laughed when they came on with the fart gun when they were doing the illumination uh, thing, and that was it, and I didn't stop giggling. I think you felt the same way, didn't you? Because, I mean, you know, you did. You, you interviewed the the main voice artist, although the, the honest truth of it is it is a film in which the funniest stuff 
is the babbling minion stuff. Steve Carell and Christian Bale. Yes, that's who we Christian had. Bale. That's Gareth that's Sherwood. I took it's a four- incredible how he can go from Amazing. one thing to the other. I took a four-year-old for his first cinema trip to see Despicable Me three this week. Sadly, we were disappointed. The children's oh. jokes weren't silly enough for the kids. The adult humour wasn't intelligent enough. The four-year-old I took laughed once, which was at the same time as all the other kids laughed. Sadly, he didn't make it to the end of the film. Oh. And Fifty minutes before the end, repeatedly asked me to leave, so as not to ruin the viewing for others. I didn't put up. Much of a fight. This was helped by the fact I didn't care about the end. A tired and predictable direction the series has gone in, and I hope that they don't turn this into another Ice Age franchise. Uh, Peter Cranny, I am the Year Six teacher at St Charles Primary School in Liverpool, yep. and today, Friday, we are treating our departing Year Six to a trip to the Plaza Cinema in Crosby, a magnificent community-run cinema who are charging three pounds a head for our children to see Despicable Me three. We are sure to have a great afternoon. Yes, Peter, you are so ignore ignore what Gareth said. <laughs> exactly. uh, we're sure to have a great afternoon, and I would like to <laughs> take this place. opportunity to thank the children for their hard work and great company this year. I am so proud to have been their teacher. I would like Mark to reassure them that secondary school will be all right. Secondary school will be all right. It will be absolutely fine. Cars 3, you're going to laugh and giggle all the way through because I did and Simon did. And I know, you know, maybe some other people didn't and that's absolutely fine. But... <coughs> but the... uh, and that's... Although I have to say that that's now become my standard response to people who are complaining about my review of the Terence Malick film. Go, oh, the Terence Malick film was a masterpiece and your problem is you don't understand that it's a masterpiece. And it just makes me go... <coughs> but the... But, uh, so the box office number one is Spider-Man Homecoming. I'll do some of uh, what I've got here. Ferris Bueller's Day Off with added webbing. I'm going to That's do... my line and I'm sticking with it. Um, Martin and Noah Brooks uh, in South Wales. Dear Iron Man and Thor. Who do you want to be? Thor. I'm happy to be Iron Man. Relatively new listener and member of the church and have just returned home with my 11-year-old son Noah from our local cinema where we have just watched Spider-Man Homecoming. As big Marvel fans, I was oh, as a big Marvel fan, I was very excited to watch the film, as was my son, who has only recently discovered the wonders of this franchise in film. For me, it was brilliant fun. We laughed more than six times. My son was transfixed with the effects and the clever and witty cast. Yes, the storyline isn't brilliant, but we didn't care. We watched Marvel movies to get lost in the loud, brash and sometimes silly action and comedy value of this great company. Uh, as we left the cinema, my son said, Dad, can we have a duvet day on Sunday and watch Marvel movies all day? A duvet day? Yeah. Oh, I've not heard of that Have before. you never had a duvet day? No. You just don't get up, basically. That's literally it. It's a duvet day. You just don't get up. And, and, and how amazing to have a son who says, can we just watch Marvel movies all day? It sounds as though Martin didn't take a lot of persuading. <laughs> uh, yes, son, I absolutely can. Although I do wonder if Martin has actually fantasised that last bit and made it up just so that he can get away with spending the whole day in bed and watching Marvel movies. I did do the whole... I did all the Twilight movies in one day. Did, were you... Uh, Having a duvet day? No, no, it was downstairs. Day? No, no, downstairs, you know, on the couch. But I did it, and, it I, and actually, I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. And this from Michelle Bissenden. I loved Spider-Man Homecoming, passed the new uh, accolade of the 10, Ten love, love test. test by a long way, but not enough to detract from the story. So nice to see a superhero halting kill mode for my favourite Spider-Man movie so far. Sorry, Mr. Raimi. So, uh, I love that bit, that bit in the clipping bit. You have to keep this secret. Dude, can I say something? I don't think I can keep it secret. Do you want to do anything else other than your pithy sentence? For Spider-Man? Yeah. Just that, you know, I I thought it was really charming. And it, and I have to say, I did go into it thinking, <sighs> again, really? And, you know, in with that accent. And uh, and came out thinking, accent. oh, actually, that's fine. Yes, you have, you, that, that that works. That makes sense. You've, you've, you know, you've taken it off in that area, which has distanced it from the other ones, and that's good. 
Just a reminder, so if you're wondering why we're here at this time, it's because the Wimbledon coverage is on the way. So we have a one-hour programme and Sophia Coppola will be talking about her new movie, which is The Beguiled, the other side of the news and sport. Uh, And anything that we don't cover will be in the podcast. So uh, we'll start some new reviews and we've got a... uh, Looks as though there's a summer holiday special here coming up. Yeah, so Cars 3. Um... I'll be honest with you, I never thought we needed a Cars 2. No. I didn't think that Cars needed a sequel, so I, the sequel does feel like pushing a point. I remember seeing Cars the first time around and being impressed by the automotive landscapes, by that you know that idea of um, you know bits of the desert and the formations of the desert looking like tail fins and you know the radiator springs. I liked all that. I thought that worked quite well. But that kind of covered all the ground that it needed to cover in the first one. I remember almost nothing about Cars 2 other than thinking... Wasn't Jason in it? I just remember very, very little about it. Jason was in it. Yeah, I don't even remember that, to be honest. So, anyway, now three. Lightning McQueen, uh, Owen Wilson, uh, he is now an old-school speedster and he must learn to be a winner again in a techno-friendly world. Uh, which has rendered him all but obsolete. You know, he used to be a champion. Now he's being outgunned by this rising star, Jackson Storm, played by Arnie Hammer, Army Hammer, who has basically been machine-tooled for speed but lacks character. Here's a clip. One reason Storm and the Next Gens are more efficient, their ability to hold the optimum racing line every single lap. Win number three for the rookie sensation. Storm's in a class of his own. And a big reason for that? Training on the newest cutting-edge simulators. These machines create a virtual racing experience so real, racers never even have to go outside. Storm's ability to hold that line is like nothing we've ever seen. Four in a row? Are you kidding me? 2% lower drag coefficient. Oh, what a finish. 5% increased downforce. Lucky number seven. 1.2% higher top speed. Amazing. Usually when we, you know, play a clip from that kind of movie, there is there's something which is, there's some sense of delight. I don't get that here at all. Um... The story is that he must go back to school, uh, be trained uh, to be a winner again, and in the process, his trainer must learn that actually, you know, maybe training isn't the only thing, maybe winning is also a thing. And there's the usual, you know, getting sidetracked off into a demolition derby at one point. And so, you know, lots of kind of nice set-piece scenes and arresting visuals, as you would expect. But narratively, it walks a really, really familiar path. You know, that idea about take the lead character, make them into an underdog, give them, a, you know, an arc they have to go through, have the sidekick discover something about themselves en route. And you can kind of, you know, you pretty much know all the key things that are going to happen. That, that's not necessarily a problem. But when you compare it to the fact that, I mean, like just, you know, in animation recently, we've had... My Life is a Courgette, and we've had The Red Turtle, and a few years ago, Inside Out was my favourite film of the year. And, you know, you have all these things which are demonstrating that there is such spectacular work being done. Um, I'm not sure that just having a narrative that feels really very much like a retread of stuff that we've had before is enough. And even that kind of... You know, there's a thing at the beginning, there's a short film... And because you often get these with the, you know, mm-hmm. short film. And there's in the short film, which is a kind of very cute uh, idea about lost and found and a lost and found box kind of coming to life and a bully character discovering a truth about themselves, sort of under, you know, and it's pithy and short and to the point. And in a way, the 
the, the everything that's right with the short film just flags up everything that's wrong with the long film. Is that the long film feels baggy and feels you know unnecessarily, but it feels unnecessary. That's not to say that there aren't certain joys, and it's also not to say the fact that I don't know enough kids who absolutely love the Cars characters, who have got the Cars toys and the Cars you know bedspread and the Cars pajamas and the Cars and and will just love the fact of seeing those characters again. And you know the race animation scenes are really well done. I just. It felt very perfunctory to me. Rick Harris says, uh, My eldest son has always been a fan of the Cars films. Cars was one of the first dads uh, first dads he was happy to sit in all the way through. OK. Dad's films. And Cars 2 was his first trip to the cinema. So Cars 3, uh, I think what that should have been is DVDs, but it's come out as right, dads. Yeah. Right, so first DVDs, he was happy to sit all the way through. Cars 2 was his first trip to the cinema. Cars 3 was always going to be a big deal, but I wondered whether he was going to still be engaged at the age of 10. OK when he's also eager to watch more grown-up films like Fast and the Furious, and he hasn't been allowed to watch that, and whether his seven-year-old sister would enjoy it too. So what seemed like months and months of watching trailers on the TV finally got to go to the cinema. Once things got rolling, I quickly relaxed as I could hear him chuckling uh, and there was no bored fidgeting. On leaving the cinema, both were repeating some of their favourite bits and were pretty positive about it. Okay. In the words of the most important critics, my eldest said, the plot was very like the original Cars film. It is. But that it was more exciting overall with sequences like the demolition derby, keeping the pace up, and my daughter said it was funny because it was too easy to see how it was all going to work out. OK, well, that's a smart kid in that case. Um, you know, I just think you expect more from, you know, the Pixar brand, but... Paul Briscoe, I was fortunate enough to attend a charity gala screening of Cars 3 this past Sunday with Child 1, Child 2 and Grandma, age 9, 2 and age withheld. There were balloon cars, <laughs> face painting and more in the foyer beforehand. There was a very brief introduction from the director. Arguably the sequel Cars 2 should have been, I thought. This had genuine heart and approaches actual pathos in the journey upon which McQueen finds himself. But... There were a few places where I caught myself marvelling at the impressive scenery and therefore taken out of the story. This sounds very familiar. I remember a similar feeling during The Good Dinosaur. The kids enjoyed it, though, and the code was observed throughout. We haven't spoken about it all week, though I don't think it made that much of an impression. No, I mean, I, I, I would be sort of generally on the same page as that review. It is true that when you start noticing the scenery, it means something. And I just always remember John Laster saying, story is everything, story is everything, you know, story is paramount. And thinking here, mm, yeah, but original story is everything. Retreading it is not necessarily a good thing. You're listening to a BBC Five Live podcast. Como de Mayo's film review. If you like this, you might also like this. Fighting talk. This is always quite random, as the podcast extras are. Freebies that you've been given by bands. I got a paperweight from ELO. To find out more about our range of podcasts, click, tap or swipe. bbc.co.uk slash five live. So we're going to talk to Sophia Coppola, uh, the director, in just a moment. Uh, first of all, a clip from the movie. Here you'll uh, you'll get to hear Nicole Kidman as Miss Martha, Addison Rika as Marie, and first Una Lawrence as Amy. Marie, come with me. that far. Is he dead? Uh, no, not yet. Quick, we need to move him to the port. 
And that is a clip from The Beguiled, and I'm delighted to say we've been joined by its director and screenwriter, Sophia Coppola. Hello, Sophia. How are you? Hello. Good. Thanks. Thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us. Um, I want to talk about, I don't think I've ever addressed this before, but in your movie, one of the first things that we see is the title. Okay. Now, that's actually quite rare in some movies. You don't get the title after about 10, 15 minutes. The script that the font that the beguiled is written in. Mm-hmm. people would be familiar with this they'll have seen it on the posters maybe but it's, oh, it's different on the posters oh yeah. but it's big and it's pink and it's very florid and it's i don't know southern gothic i don't know what the right font name is <laughs> but it says sort of gone with the wind it says what do you know what that font is and um you know it was designed by my friend peter miles who's a graphic designer i think he created it but i don't know what that font is called i have to ask him but it's very um melodramatic and it is. and yeah, I loved that he did it that way. It's like, it's like a statement, you know, before you, if you froze it, you know, and you were doing a film yes. studies class, you pointed it because it's got some stunning scenery in the background anyway. So what, is, what is the message that is coming from just the letters of the Beguiled? Uh, yeah, it's amazing all the kind of elements that can, you know, you're starting the story and introducing that world. And I also it was a tradition in older movies, maybe like in the 50s or 40s, to have a, a large kind yes. of grand... Um, film title which kind of has gone out of fashion yeah. lately and this fills the, it absolutely yes. fills the <laughs> screen so tell us the story of the beguiled now this was um a novel in 1966 by thomas p uh, cullinan then it's a movie in 1971 starring clint eastwood directed by don siegel i hadn't seen it before i did watch the trailer <laughs> for it i watched a couple of minutes of it pretty sordid it is, and not at all the movie which, which you've made. But just tell us how you came to tell this story. Yeah, a friend of mine told me, oh, you have to watch The Beguiled, the 71 Don Siegel movie, and I think you, you should remake it. And I, and I was like, oh, I would never remake a movie. What are you talking about? But I had never seen the film. It's not very known in America except for with people that really know movies, and it's sort of this you know, genre B-movie classic that's you know beloved in its way. And... Um, yeah, it was just the story stayed in my mind because it just it it's there's a shift a, a turn in the story that I just wasn't expecting and I was really surprised by and and it just stayed in my mind and how it was about a group of women in the Southern Girls School they take in a wounded enemy soldier and it's what happens in this house and very claustrophobic and the Don Siegel film was made from the very male point of view of the soldier of these women and I thought oh I, I would love to see this story from the female character's point of view because it's a group of women living together. And and so I felt like I, I went back to the book, which was out of print, and I thought, oh, you know, you could really make a very different movie. It doesn't have to be a remake of that. But the premise was so rich to tell another story from the same premise. Was the original movie, was the Don Siegel movie quite similar to the book? Or is your um, version more similar to the book? I think mine is more similar to the book, but they have elements. I mean, it's definitely all based on the same material. But, you know, the, the filmmaker or the writer you edit the book to choose what you want to focus on. Sure. And, and that was more like an exploitation kind of tawdry thing. And this isn't tawdry. It and, was, and it's the, like a male fantasy turned nightmare. And, okay. and this, yeah. So who are, who are the women and who are the girls in this seminary? The main characters are Elle Fanning plays a um, kind of teenage student. Uh, Kirsten Dunst is the teacher. And Nicole Kidman plays the headmistress. And then there's some young actresses that play other students. And, and they're very cut off during wartime and isolated and confined to this abandoned mansion that was a, a girls' school. And they kind of have nowhere to go. And they're, they haven't seen men, been around men for many years. And they're really um, isolated. And, and they take in this wounded soldier. Yes. And this is uh, Corporal John McBurney 
played by Colin Farrell. And I think there's a number of people who will have... Uh, it's a very tense opening when we see one of the girls discovering a wounded Colin Farrell. And my first reaction was, oh, it's Colin Farrell. I'd be very careful if I were you. <laughs> oh, good. He's, yeah, he has to be dangerous and intriguing. Yes. Well, he, he, absolutely, he absolutely is. So the, big, the cleverness of the title, certainly in English is that for the first section, first few sections of the movie, he could be the beguiled. Yeah, I love that about the titles. You don't know who's the beguiled. It's true when it's translated into other languages, it, it loses that. But um, but yeah, that's what I like about it. And the whole story is really kind of this power shift back and forth of who can be trusted and, um, and is he a guest or a prisoner. And uh, he's a Yankee, so he's in enemy territory. But... Colin is speaking in his native accent, so he's an Irish mercenary, essentially, and the script makes that very clear that he just was paid money. Uh, how important is the fact that he's a mercenary? Well, um, in, the, in the original book, he is an Irish immigrant, so when I met Colin and hearing him speak in his accent, I thought it, it adds another interesting element, and, and it makes it more exotic to these southern women. And, and also they can kind of justify that maybe he isn't really fighting the cause, so maybe he's not really an enemy. It makes I think it makes it a little more complicated. And uh, what, what are you going to turn your attention to next, of you? Oh, I'm not sure. I've been working on this for two years, so I'm really excited to get it out into the world and then um, take a break with my family and figure out what to do next. You haven't got like six projects waiting mm-hmm. to go. I don't. I don't. I tend to finish one and then think about what my interests will go from there. Um, Sophia Coppola, we appreciate you uh, spending some time with us. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sophia Coppola talking about the Bigard. There's a longer version of, uh, of that interview which will be uh, included on the podcast and she is fascinating. It's an intriguing film. What did you make of The Beguiled, Mark? Well, the first thing to say is that I really like the Don Siegel original. I'm a big fan of it. And I think, yes, it's absolutely true that it, you know it's an exploitation movie. I'm a big fan of exploitation movies. And this is a very, very different uh, take on the story, despite the fact that the story actually follows fairly closely the parameters of the story as told in the film. Both of them obviously adapted, you quite rightly say that, from a novel by uh, Thomas Cullinan. And uh, Cullinan, Cullinan, how I don't know how you Cullinan, I think. Cullinan. Coppola, Coppola. And tinnitus. Tinnitus. Let's call the whole thing off. So um, what uh, Sophia Coppola has said that she's trying to do is to tell the story from the women's point of view, although, I mean, it is arguable that in the previous versions it has been told from... I mean, it has been told from multiple points of view. There are multi, Particularly in the original, there's all these sort of voiceovers and, you know, uh, explanations in which the characters sort of start, you know, wandering out loud. Um, but in this, what it does is it absolutely centres on the group of women who were there at the Farnsworth uh, Seminary for uh, young uh, women, for young ladies, pardon me. And it's about the way in which they interact when Colin Farrell's character is brought into their midst. As before, central to it is the idea of who is beguiled, who's doing the beguiling, who is beguiled, you know, who is... And and that central mystery remains fundamentally true, although you're quite right that in the same way as with the Clint Eastwood character, you take one look... (laughs) at Colin Farrell and he does that twinkly thing he's brought in and he wakes up and he immediately starts being incredibly polite and has incredibly gracious manners and you know about how grateful he is and he does that Colin Farrell twinkle thing and you think I'm not going to trust you as soon as he's got his Colin Farrell as far as I could throw you would you you allow Colin Farrell into your seminary answer no you know short of actually yeah anyway but, but but I think he does that very well and he plays that change between, on the one hand, starting out sort of being very narcissistic and, on the other hand, 
also feeling you know emasculated because he's he's injured and playing the way in which he plays the characters off against each other the way in which he tries to offer each one of them what he thinks will seduce them to his purpose and i think he plays that very well i think nicole kidman does a very good job of playing a cards close to her chest certainly the performance is uh, very different from the performance <clears throat> that you get in the in the Siegel version. It's much more sort of understated. There is a certain steeliness to it, but it also has you know nuances. I think it's a very nuanced performance. Although I think her accent wobbles a little bit. Um, the real uh, stellar performance is Kirsten Dunst, who plays this terribly, this kind of constantly disappointed character, who has the countenance of somebody who is you know full of melancholy and loss and longing and has been betrayed you know in the past. And I think she plays that really well you're looking at me you you don't think that was the case you didn't feel that her character had all those things you do sorry say that again that Kirsten Dunst's character feels like you wells of melancholy yes and yeah fine so you were listening to something else that's why there was okay going on I see sorry you were just giving me an absolutely blank stare which I I shouldn't it's my professional look shouldn't make eye contact with you and I think all those things are great I love the you know the 166 frame the way in which you get the you know the texture of film I love the thing at the beginning with coming down from the trees and the the lens flare and the, the sort of gauzy, mossy, dreamy feel. However, I also think that there's a fundamental, you know, shift which has occurred, um, which is that, you know, to take away the... the I mean, certainly if you watch the, the Siegel version, it's, you know, there's incest and there's assault and there's, you know, child abuse and, you know, and it's it's very, very ripe. And uh, it's absolutely got a one foot in the kind of, you know, horror psychodrama uh, camp. And personally, I, I like that about it. I like the fact that it's because I remember seeing it for the first time. It was, I think I saw it at the Scala. And it was one of those things that was always on a double bill. And it was always, you know, a, a feature that people wanted to, to see. When Coppola says it's not that well known in America, I think it is pretty well known here. Most sort of, you know, film enthusiasts would know it pretty well here. There are some issues with that is that, the the because the beguiled the original the Siegel version is so sort of you know full on yes there are things about it that you you know you might wince at nowadays but it also has a kind of uh, a, a really sort of lean mean feel to it in the case of this it feels much more like a fairy tale I mean, it's a, a, something which you raised in the interview there is this fairy tale sense to it it's you know called princesses in towers and in comes this he may be prince he may be wolf. And also what that does is it it dehistoricizes it. I mean, it's quite right talking about the idea that the Civil War is background noise. I mean, in The Seagull, you have these images of the Civil War and the battlefield is thrown back to you, see flashbacks to the battle. It's absolutely there. In this version, it is this is like it's happening in a kind of timeless never world. And it's much more something that feels like it has an archetypal fairy tale quality to it than anything that actually has to do with the Civil War. I'm not sure that I agree that the defence about taking out um, the character of Halley is, you know, that there wasn't a way of doing that uh, in a way which which would have made that character strong. Actually, in the original, in the 19, in the Siegel version, uh, that character played by May Mercer is terrifically strong, has many of the best lines in the film, um, and uh, is, a, is one of the very few presences in the film that actually understands what's going on not just in the house but outside of the house and is a you know is a voice that i think you know could could easily have been adapted for for this film but i do think that it has um it has a kind of dreamy enchanted style that's kind of seductive it's very much part and parcel of coppola's what she described herself as the box set you know if you look at all her films together they do all 
they return to certain themes and absolutely, you know, timeless, apolitical, ahistorical is what she does. And if you're somebody who's, you know, who, who is seduced by that side of her filmmaking, then I think you, with this you will get absolutely what you expect. I can imagine... Um, there's one very particular fan of the Siegel version who wasn't sitting next to me when I was watching the film. I could almost hear him going, what, what? Uh, but I do like this version, but I, I have to say I have a, I have a fondness for the Siegel version, which, which I think is, is longer term. Uh, Jack Bonamy on an email here who went to see it at the BFI with his new girlfriend. What a great start to, uh, to a long and enjoyable sequence of trips to the BFI in London. We both loved it. Humorous, horrifying and beguiling. I must admit I broke the code in the first few seconds of the film when I leant over to my girlfriend and whispered, check out that aspect ratio. Yeah, very good. It's coming back in a It is. However, I assure you, the rest rest of the film was totally code compliant. The second half of the film had me rooted to the spot. I found it interesting that while a lot of the audience were laughing, I was terrified. I thought the ambiguity of who exactly the beguiled was in the film was maintained well throughout, leaving me unsure who to sympathise with most. And that's not to mention the beautiful cinematography and great performances uh, throughout. War 4, Planet of the Apes, is the new Andy Serkis film. Andy was on a couple of weeks back. Take it away. Well, in the wake of Rise and Dawn at the beginning of the movie, you get this kind of explanation of what's happened before with the words rise, dawn in in bold. It's sort of explaining, you know, blah, blah, blah. There was a rise of the thing with the dawn of the... Now we're going to the war. And uh, and I have always thought the titles are slightly baffling. Anyway, um, now we have War for the Planet of the Apes, third instalment in this uh, latest uh, series of reboots. And this is a series which is, you know, which has been rendered on screen in many versions right back from the original movies and their sequels to the television adaptation. There was cartoon versions. There was, of course, the Tim Burton version, which everybody now sort of passes over rather gently, and now this. Uh, Essentially, humanity ravaged by the simian flu, the remains of the armed forces are now hunting uh, Caesar, played brilliantly by Andy Serkis, in a last-ditch attempt to wipe out the rising ape culture. So humanity is in retreat, ape culture is uh, on the rise. Um... As with Kong Skull Island, you get this kind of weird uh, Vietnam War parallel happening in the background. Uh, At one point, you see um, the words Apocalypse Now written on the walls of tunnels that run underneath this this encampment where a character, the Colonel, played um, by... uh, Woody Harrelson as um, basically Colonel, well, a cross between, you know, Colonel Marlon Brando and Robert Duvall is doing this sort of last ditch attempt, attempting to build a wall, something which feels terribly relevant now because it's interesting because the production would have lasted such a long time. And uh, in the middle of all this, you have an awful lot of tragedy, an awful lot of, you know, grim labour camp sequences with a certain injection of much-needed comic relief from a character called Bad Ape. I see, girl, I think you human. But you ape like me. No, 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 put down. How long have you been here? Long, long time. Are there more like you? More apes from zoo? Dead. All dead. Long time. Human gets sick. Ape gets smart. Then human kill ape. But not me. I run. You learn to speak. Listen. Human. Bad ape. 
I know what you're going to say. That doesn't sound very funny, but that, of course, no, of course, but that is Steve Zahn, who during the course of the movie then becomes, you know, messing around with, uh, you know, binoculars the wrong way around. And there is there is an element of humour as a result of his character. So as before, the real miracle of this is the performance capture work done particularly by Andy Serkis. Um, I was just, my breath was taken away by just how good the facial representation of Caesar. I mean, the other characters as well, but particularly Caesar was. There's a wonderful moment in which um, the, the colonel says, my God, look at your eyes. They're almost human. And you think, yeah, that's absolutely right. That is exactly what they are. In fact, the face of Caesar, you can really see Andy Serkis in it. I mean, despite the fact that it's a, it's a digital face, you can absolutely recognise Andy Serkis's facial expressions and features in it. Everything about that character is three-dimensional and there is nobody, I think, who has done, you know, quite such a lot to push forward the performance capture process. I mean, obviously what you get is that it's this blend of thespian skill and just technological brilliance, you know, magic, wizardry to make this character. And there were, there were large sections of the film in which I was simply astonished by how good that stuff is. The rest of the film itself is, I mean, it's dark. It's, you know, it's, it takes its subject serious, seriously, despite the fact there are these kind of, you know, these very sort of small passing, you know, comic lacunae. And um, I was, as somebody who grew up on the Planet of the Apes movies, and I love the original Planet of the Apes movies, and I still hold a particular place for them, and the Tim Burton one, as I said, most people sort of now pass over. I thought it was a good, solid film with a brilliant central performance for which we must say hats off to everybody that worked on the visual effects for it and hats off to Andy Serkis for that performance. And um, I think, it I mean, it is surprisingly dark. And when you consider this is basically a blockbuster series, it is surprising just how dark. I don't mean dark in the Zack Snyder sense of dark. I mean dark as in properly dealing with difficult subject matter in a way that I thought was very impressive. You? I, uh, yeah, pretty much agree with all of that. I think Andy Serkis' performance and the technology is the best so far, but I found it the least satisfying of the three. Because? I would say, and I think... Analyzing it, it's probably because I didn't really like Woody Harrelson's character because you thought it was too curt. Just so, it was just so completely derivative. When when he's first introduced, they're actually playing Hey Joe, aren't they? So it is kind of like it's, it is writ large as <laughs> to is. what they're doing. And I thought, given how original everything else has been, that maybe that was slightly disappointing. Did it occur to you at all that there was that that we had sort of seen that that Vietnam parallel thing recently in Oh Kong Skull Island, Island, where they were didn't isn't the they make reference to Kurtz. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, yes, exactly. But there's also there, there are those parallels are there all the way Everything through. Everything is that, very yeah. Vietnam. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I would think it's an astonishing performance. It looks absolutely fantastic, and then just, but just maybe slightly disappointing. Okay, which of the which of them is the favourite for you then? Rise. I would think one. Rise. Anyway, we're out of time. Oh, oh sorry. Okay. Uh, movie of the week. What for Potter? Thank you. It's been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Next week, we're on at 1pm. Do try and keep up. Special, <laughs> special guest is the great Christopher Nolan talking Dunkirk. Well, that was the end of our truncated show, but fortunately, the podcast can take up the slack. And we've got, as usual, we have quite a lot of slack. Um, <laughs> and so I didn't have a chance to do any of the Wooftpoter emails, but uh, here they are. Neil in Go ahead. London Go on. says, I went to see Wooftpoter and actually got the greatest gape with the emphasis on the ape, because he's put that in capital letters. Yeah. But without the sense of peril. A terrible disappointment. When oh, I had, really? 
I'd been expecting okay. this final part of the series to establish it as the greatest trilogy since Toy Story. Steve Zahn being properly funny as Bad Ape was scant consolation. There was so much originality in the first two films, but it felt like Matt Reeves had run out of steam here. It was so out of ideas by comparison that I half expected 2001's Black Monolith to appear in the closing scenes. It's not a bad film, just not the great one that Matt Reeves' record had me expecting. Okay, Peter Freeman. Just seen War for the Planet of the Apes is not the type of film I would normally go and see, preferring serious adult dramas. Only went because of an unexpectedly free afternoon and an arrangement I have with a certain cinema chain which allows me to see all the films I all want the time. as often as I like. Is that Add, called being an usher? Uh, that would be very good, wouldn't it? Add to this a running time of over two hours, an unavoidable 3D, which I have always avoided up until now, and I thought it would only be a question of how long I would last before walking out. Well, but I was bowled over. Best among its many qualities is an amazing attention to detail in every shot, together with plot and characterization, which went much deeper than the minimum needed to keep the show on the road. Also, somehow the face of the chief ape was just right. Even some of the 3D effects were impressive, though I saw it in 3D, can't remember yeah, anything. Exactly, about I saw it in 3D and I, was, I actually thought at one point, oh, I'm watching it in 3D. I, I literally I hadn't noticed. So that, that most pleasant of surprises, a low expectation film which turned out to be excellent. I will keep a more open mind in future. Uh, Dr. Emad George, uh, just returned from War for Planets of the Apes here in Abu Dhabi, where I work. Code violations are plenty, but a round of applause from the audience as the credits rolled. High praise indeed, and very well deserved, in my humble opinion, a must see. Uh, I have to say this is... Who's this now? This is Simon Meadows. I have to say I had the absolute privilege on Thursday of seeing the second best film I've seen this year after Logan. To be fair, War for the Planet mm, of the Apes pretty much had me with their version of the 20th Century Fox intro. Yeah, which is... just. I don't think this is a spoiler. No. They basically the played the 20th Century Fox intro on what sounds like a sort of Planet of the Apes style, because initially it's, it's, it's drums, it's percussion, isn't it? When it starts up, you don't quite realise that that's what it is. It's fantastic. The film itself was nothing short of amazing. The visuals, the music, which I thought really fitted in wonderfully with the mood and the acting from Andy Serkis. Very melancholy score, and which absolutely plays up the pathos and the tragedy. Woody Harrelson with the best villain performance since Tom Hiddleston's Loki in Avengers Assemble, as well as Steve Zahn, but all pale to my favourite, to my personal favourite, which is Morris. Maurice. Maurice. I thought Matt Reeves and Andy Serkis did a great job in portraying the range of emotions that Caesar went through. If I had one bone of contention, it would be the poor 3D on show, and for reasons known only to themselves, Fox decided to release the preview screenings uh, in 3D. Yes, it's Maurice, who I think is... Uh, he becomes almost like the the conscience, doesn't he? The emotional yeah, absolutely. Center. Yeah, absolutely. Just one more. Marie and Ray decided to watch Rot Potter and Dot Potter back to back this week before going out to see Wooft Potter uh, last night at the Hollywood Cinema in Sumner in Christchurch, New Zealand. After the lights went down and following a brief bit of SHRCVSR school holiday related code violation seat reassignment to get away from the gaggle of over-enthusiastic schoolboys clutching noisy big bags full of noisy smaller bags, <laughs> we settled down full of anticipation for the third instalment of the Apes trilogy. Loved every minute of it, and having watched all three films back-to-back, -back, can honestly say that this trilogy has made it to the top of our, li our list of threebies. It's a big call, I know, but we're putting it right up there, comfortably ahead of Star Wars, 4, 5 and 6, and alongside The Godfathers. Both Rupert Wyatt, Matt Reeves and all the actors involved have achieved something special here. The first non-human mocap characters to be totally believable and sympathetic alongside their human counterparts. No uncanny valley here. If the quality stays this high, keep them coming. 
say Marie and Ray. So that's pretty much uh, a thumbs up with the odd, with one or two exceptions. So anyway, Mark, what else is out? So um, there's this documentary called David Lynch: The Art Life, which is a documentary the about the art life, the art life, art life right. about uh, the director of you know Blue Velvet and the Elephant Man, uh, in which we see him at work in his painting studio uh, in the modern day. And then what we do is we follow his life as a child growing up and becoming somebody who discovers what he calls the art life. And I think it's a fascinating documentary because it's focusing on his painting and this sort of strange sculpting stuff that he does and these kind of weird canvases that he makes. But actually what it does is it leads you up to the point of him making Eraserhead. He said that when he was a kid, he was astonished to discover that a friend had a father whose job it was to be an artist. And he was just, his mind was blown in that very David, beautiful, in that very David Lynch way, his mind was completely blown by the idea that you could do this for a profession. And through photographs and early uh, cine film, we see his young life. We hear about his mother and father who sound absolutely lovely, really tolerant and encouraging, if not overtly demonstrative. And we learn about his amazement at discovering, you know, that art can be a profession and his his route from being somebody who was dabbling in art to somebody who ends up getting this grant to go to LA that ends up being at film school and he ends up basically making a raise head and talking about if he didn't get that grant, he didn't know, you know, where his life would have gone. But what's really fascinating is that we hear all these little stories and the whole thing very much like the, the De Palma documentary, it's just his voice, he's narrating his own story. We hear all these little vignettes that seem to foreshadow all the work that he does later on. So at one point he talks about, you know, my, my mother, I'm not going to do the whole thing in a David Lynch voice, it'll get That's very annoying. Relief. Yes, because I'm not going to because you rolled your eyes. Although beautiful negativity. I was rolling my eyes. Positivity flows. On behalf of Negativity goes. Anyway, <laughs> it's not good if you can't see the hand movements. So he describes how when he was a kid, his mother dug holes in these mud pits and then filled them up with water. And he and his friend would sit in these mud pits. And he says, beautiful. And he describes squelching the mud between his fingers. And then we see him working with paint basically doing the same thing. Basically now, you know, a, a grand old man doing this same thing that he did when he was a kid. We hear him talking about he does a, a black painting with some leaves and then he starts to say, and as he was looking at the painting, he saw the leaves moving and he heard the sound of wind and he thought, and which is very Twin Peaks, you know, because every, every, every time in Twin Peaks when you need an interstitial, it cuts to a shot of some trees with, a, with that wind sound. And, um, and he says this wonderful thing. He says, I, I, you know, I, I thought, what an idea, a moving picture with sound. And you're going, yeah, David, it's called cinema. And then there is another, which I'm going to play you a clip now, of a, a moment from his childhood which seems to foreshadow a particularly memorable instance in Blue Velvet. One night, I kind of had the feeling it was in the fall, and it was pretty late. Usually, my father would go outside and yell, John! David! And that would bring us home. But this night, it must have been... I don't know, close to that time. It was, seemed to be pretty late. I don't know what we were doing, but from across Shoshone Avenue, out of the darkness comes this, like, kind of like a strangest dream. 
because I'd never seen an adult woman naked. It gets to the punchline in the end. But that's exactly, he talks in the way that his that his films sort of, you know, tell their stories, that there's a marvellous moment. You know that there's a, there's, there's a clip of me interviewing David Lynch at the BFI South Bank, and it ended up as a, like an Easter egg on one of David Lynch's videos. And essentially I ask him this very long question about, you know, in all your movies you use this thing about electricity arcing, and it seems to me that the, what the electricity arcing is about is about synaptic responses. And I, it's a very, very long question. Really? And I get, yeah, thank you. And I get to the end, I go, can you just, I know you don't like to explain what your movies are about, but is, is there something in there? And then there's a long pause and he just goes, no. And everyone laughs, okay, which is hilarious um, because he doesn't like explaining his movies. Incidentally, what that doesn't tell you is that I asked him the same question two weeks earlier and he gave me a long response. Um, But there's a moment in this documentary in which he says, I was making a painting that was about four foot square. (laughs) I mean, he literally doesn't even do it as a joke. He literally says, he's going to say what it's about. It was about four foot square. And then you hear him talking about how, when he was making Eraserhead, how he literally wanted to live in the world of... You've seen Eraserhead, right? A long, long time ago. Okay, but you remember... With the, the word that you would use to describe your razor head is probably not beautiful. Okay? No. So, but what he says is, you know, I, there was the set and I would just sit there and imagine this beautiful... I wanted to live. In, and he talks about your razor head like it is the most perfect... That what he really wants more than anything is to be living in that world of your razor head in which he can just imagine the world going on with these sort of strange factories belching smoke and weird alien babies and, you know, and the woman singing in the... The radiator with the hamster cheeks. I thought the documentary was great because one of the things it managed to do was you can't ask David Lynch questions because he sort of, he, you know, he doesn't answer in a linear way. But the, if you allow him to talk about himself, he'll do it fascinatingly. And the archival stuff is really, really good. And there is another lovely moment when he starts telling this story about him and his family and they're about to move away and they go outside and the people across the street and then he goes... I can't tell this story. And then it goes. And you, you're going, what? This sounds quite annoying. No, it's not annoying. It's really fascinating because it's what it's what you want. You know, David Lynch is never going to sit down and go, Eraserhead is about this, Blue, you know, Blue Velvet is about this, because that's not what they're about. They're like poems. If you, could, if you could explain them in simple terms, there wouldn't be any reason to do it. There's a famous thing that the only way you can ever criticise a painting is with another painting, that the only way you can ever pass comment on poetry is with another poem. Incidentally, I don't believe that. No, and I hadn't heard that before, and it sounds rubbish. And annoying, but it's an idea, Simon. And it's an and, and what what Lynch does is the art life is the world of ideas. art life. The art life. <laughs> you know, I'm amazed that I watched the film and at no point did that joke occur to me. But now that you've said it, you've ruined the film for me. Every, art life. Every time art life is mentioned or it comes up on screen, everyone liking <laughs> shout art life. <laughs> is that it? Well, it is now. Yeah, you've kind of I. It was. I went in singing its praises, and I came out singing, singing art life. Singing about singing art life. Art life. I I hate you sometimes. That's so mean. Bless you. So TV movie of the week. Oh, yes. This is a very important moment. Uh, not normally at this stage in the podcast. However, it's here because of the uh, the tennis. 
So this is the list of best films on subscription-free television. It goes up on our Facebook page. So, so what you mean is non-subscription television? Subscription-free television is what it says, so I'm sticking to that. Okay. Uh, anyway, so if you want to take part, that's where it is. Vicky Smith, crikey, what a fabulous week for films. I'd watch all of these, but have to go for The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. I'm with the good lady Professor Her indoors. So this is Vicky, who's been listening and reading quite attentively. Uh, Powell and Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death is my very favourite film of all time, but Blimp gets better every time I see it. Jake Gibbard has to be Inception. It's the film that's most inspired me and made me develop the interest I have in the art of film today. Not only that, it's a summer blockbuster that isn't just loud and dumb nonsense. Neil Hughes. Well, where to start this week? Heat is a masterpiece. Inception is visually stunning and Speed is a fantastic popcorn movie. My choice would be for Donnie Brasco, easily one of the best gangster movies ever made and I never tire of watching it. Is it just me or is Donnie Brasco on television every week? Because it keeps coming up on this list and I know that at some point I will choose it. But it's it's not this week. It's not this week. Adam Avery, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban for me every day of the week, although Mark will definitely go with the Duke of Burgundy as he loved Barbarian Sound System. And there we go. So much. Oh, okay. It says that we might as well finish there. And someone who I think is Bedwear Gulledge. Inception for sure. Christopher Nolan's mind bending tale requires plenty of concentration, but is more than worth the ride. Honourable mention for the classic that is Forbidden Planet, which is also on at a respectable hour. However, what is our TV movie of the week, Mark? Expecting him to. I believe I have done Forbidden Planet before. Um, I'm going to go for The Duke of Burgundy because I was off the week The Duke of Burgundy came out, and I think Robbie Collin ended up uh, reviewing it. And I remember listening and really hoping that it was, you know, it, that he enjoyed it as much as, as I had done. Peter Strickland is is an, just an amazing filmmaker. And the really interesting thing with The Duke of Burgundy is it takes a whole bunch of kind of inspirational texts that would have been thought of in a particular way and just turns them on their head and turns them into something else. I love Peter Strickland because he's somebody who has a real fascination with what we think of as, you know, exploitation cinema. I mean, you love Barbarian Sound Studio, right? And yet yes. I, I'm pretty certain... Thanks, Toby. ...that you didn't... Yeah, but you loved that film, right? But I'm sure that you wouldn't have gone to see many of the films that, you know, that were sort of referred to... Correct. You know, in, exactly. So what he does is he takes all those, you know, that Jallo stuff and on this case kind of, you know, sexploitation and, and does something completely fascinating and psychologically profound with it. I think he's a, I think he is a really extraordinary filmmaker. Uh, Simon Barker, just on this uh, subject, has been uh, a victim of what he's calling a wacky... A wacky? A wittertainment acronym confusion incident. Okay, that is a new one. I don't think we've had that before. I was listening to the podcast on something not remotely funny. (laughs) I got to the pithy film of the week section. I must have... This is about the TV movie, yes. I must have been slightly distracted and I zoned out, uh, particularly on the suggestion of a rot-poter, not-poter, double-bill suggestion. I was intrigued uh, because these were interesting titles and believing that they were a couple of the good doctor's favourite fiaffles films in a foreign language... Oh, I see, Rot Potter and Not ...immediately Potter. reached for my remote recording app and searched for Rot Potter, as in a word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine my surprise when nothing came up. Had I spelt them correctly, was it two words? When did this trend for acronymization become de rigueur? I don't remember going to a double bill of... Jubel and Awuk. Of what? Well, it's E-W-W-B-L and... Hang on, E-W-W-B-L. What film is that? Hang on, E-W-W-B-L. And then A-W-W-Y-C. Anyway, it's going to drive me mad now. A-W-W-Y-C. 
Oh, every which way but loose. And every which way you can. There you go. Very good. Did, did Simon prompt you? Yeah, well, someone next door did. Oh, OK. It was well Parminda, done. our engineer. Well done. Thanks, Parminda. Well done. But... Uh, hang on, hang on. Did you, did you know that? Did you, did you guess it or did you know it beforehand? You guessed it. You're smart. Yeah, you yeah. see, wrong people are behind the glass. But surely no one is way around. seriously going to think Rot Potter is the name. Anyway. Well, there is Rogopug, isn't there? So, I mean, he, he, he could have... It could, I'm, actually, I'm surprised it didn't come up with that. So Anyway, thanks. We have a special guest uh, joining us <laughs> uh, at great expense. Uh, we have one of our uh, listeners, a colonial commoner, uh, actually has joined us, who we referred to a couple of years back and got involved in a series of correspondence. I'm not quite sure how it started, but let's see if we can remember. With Harriet Cross, who is Britain's Consul General to Boston in the United States of America. Hello, Harriet. Hello, Simon. It's very nice to have you actually on the Excuse show. me. And hello, Mark. And hello, Mark. Thank she you. She was getting there, Mr. Oh, well. Yeah, but I, you know, I just felt like I was being sidelined. I was asking the contributor. Um, how how did, lovely to have you here. A, it's a delight. How are you to be enjoying here. your stay in what is obviously your country anyway? <laughs> oh, it's fabulous. We're back in London. I love it. Uh, and remind me how we how you got involved in this show in the first place. So I have been listening to the show for a long time, as has my husband. We're both huge fans. Um, and I was in Saudi Arabia on a posting and I wrote to the programme to say, could you please say happy birthday to my husband? Because I couldn't be there with him because he was in the UK and I was That's in right. Saudi. I couldn't watch any films in Saudi because they don't have cinemas. Um, and so um, you very kindly picked out my letter and Mark, you said happy birthday to Phil, happy who was Phil. delighted. And then other people said, you do know that the woman who sent that in is Britain's Consul General. Oh, well, yeah, and then late, so then later I moved on from Saudi Arabia to Boston and I was kind of tweeting about how fabulous Wittertainment was. Great. And, uh, yeah, somebody said... We monitor uh, all of those things very closely. Don't we? we have an app that whenever anyone says something <laughs> nice, it, it's like a bat signal, isn't it? We, yeah, it automatically comes the sky. Yes. And isn't your other half a... Isn't he a brewer? Yeah, he's a micro-brewer, yeah. And so obviously he didn't go with you to Saudi. Exactly. But, I brought you a couple of beers, actually. He sent you a little present. Oh, very nice. Yeah. And you want... You know, this is a regular feature. This is very good. Harriet brings us presents. This is great because I'm going from here off to Latitude because I'm doing this the Latitude stuff. So I'll just I'll take I'll take some micro brew beer with me. Yeah. Uh, and what is so the role of a consul general is is what? So as much as anything else, it's to promote the magnificence of the UK in the US. So, um, but in, in Boston, if you if anyone's walked around Boston, they basically if they see a Brit, they they assume that there's going to be a bayonet <laughs> quite, <laughs> quite close to their chest. They love us. They love us really. So, um, I do a lot of work on promoting trade and investment, promoting the film industry. I've got a brilliant three minute clip that's got loads of films, some of which people think like Star Wars. That's that's an American film, but of course, filmed in the UK. Loads of British expertise in all sorts of films that people don't understand. Um, so, I've got this great clip that I play people at the beginning of speeches that I do just to show how awesome we are and the film industry is one example of that. Do you think that there are lots of people in the di diplomatic corps who listen to this show who maybe aren't as bold as yourself in terms of coming out? I know that there are. So Babu Rahman, hello to him, and Helen Smith, who's in our um, High Commission in New Zealand. They're both big fans. We definitely need to go and do a show in New Zealand and Australia. Yeah, well, We'd at least fill a village hall. I think you know if we went to Australia, it, what's the what's the one that looks like a hat? You know, um, Sydney Opera House. <laughs> it does. It looks like a hat. You think we could fill Sydney Opera House? Do you? I think yeah. It's, it's not that big. It's not bigger than the Hammersmith Odeon, is it? I mean, we could do that. Can so, I, is there? How can that be? There should be a diplomats. What's the big venue in Boston that we could play? Oh my goodness, um, Faneuil Hall. You could do Faneuil you Hall. Could, you could do that. You you should totally come to Boston. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I've been to I thought Boston was lovely. I said my kids had the best time in the Boston Children's Museum and they couldn't get them out. It was absolutely lovely. And it was incredibly civilised and really nice. As you say, everybody was really friendly. And yeah. I mean, like, none of this bayonets on the end of it nonsense. They were very, they were very nice. And you, no, I, of course they're very nice. Know. But obviously it was an important, it's a very, very important I do understand that historically the... there, may be, there may be issues bubbling just below <laughs> the surface. Oh, you think? Yes. Yes, no, that's true. Cup of tea? No, never mind. They've got some great film festivals in Boston. They do a sci-fi film festival. Oh, really? At the Somerville Theatre. You should take a look at the Somerville Theatre. It's a really nice old theatre. You can sort all this out. Of course. Yeah, you can. There we go. So... What did you watch coming over? Did you have any owls? Uh No, I had. There was there was a technical problem with the uh, with films. So you had no films. Home. I had literally no films. How long was the flight? Uh, it's about six hours. It's not. It's not that so far. What, so what, six hours with nothing. What did you do? Yeah. I watched, did you read a book? No, I had some BBC iPlayer programs downloaded that I watched. There you go. That saved my life. Well, we uh, thank you very much, Steve, for uh, for promoting Wittertainment. Using the uh, the diplomatic bags of the British government. <laughs> diplomatic bags do still exist, by the way. They come in and out. And um, a diplomatic bag means that you could it can't be opened by customs. Yeah, it's kind of all properly sealed up. So it's sort of so it's 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 our property, and no matter what it goes through, it doesn't. You know, what what kind of secrets would be in a diplomatic? I, I bag? couldn't possibly say. For ex- yeah. for example, what kind of thing couldn't you tell us? <laughs> you see, you're very sneaky, but I'm sneakier. So, no, I was trying to hack into one the other day with a pair of scissors, which wasn't very successful. You're trying to hack into a diplomatic bag with a pair of scissors? Yeah. What are they made of? Well, the, the bags are kind of cotton, but the, the, the kind of, they've got those ties on them. Did you have feeble of, scissors? Yeah, they were, they were fairly feeble. <laughs> yeah. I think we need to. I think we need to have a what's in the diplomatic bag <laughs> game quiz in which, in which in which you bring in some diplomatic bags and just by fondling the bags, we have to decide what's inside them. That'll work, won't it? That'd be perfect. Great for radio. Um, yeah, good point. Well, we'll 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 open diplomats' dungeon or some other part of the church, <laughs> and and you can be the the main. And also, there's other folk in New Zealand who. Do you, oh yeah. Do you have a diplomatic car when you're there? I do have a car with diplomatic plates. And yes. does that mean that you can like park on double yellow lines and go the wrong way down one way street? Some people might do that. I obviously wouldn't wouldn't do anything. Okay, like that but if were you so inclined, is that that is right? You might find that occasionally the authorities may turn a blind eye if you've got diplomatic plates. If you're doing something that's not one hundred percent kosher, that's yes, isn't it? Yeah, that's like having a Batmobile. I'd like to have diplomatic plates. Somebody, I'd like to be Harriet Cross. Actually. When I used to live in Camden, somebody parked outside our house with diplomatic plates and the alarm went off on their car and it went off for about seven hours, during which the police no. were called and the police said, sorry, mate, can't touch that, diplomatic plates. And all I thought was, yeah. Anyway, Harriet, how nice to have you in the studio. Nice to put a face to the, uh, the to the, all the tweets and the correspondence. Thank you very much indeed. And continue Thank flying you. the flag, obviously the Wittertainment flag, alongside in your luxury kind of Bentley as you go through Boston. <laughs> You've got the British flag. Parking on yellow lines. Union flag there and the Wittertainment flag at the back. Thanks, Harriet. Thank you. And you can stay for what is the highlight for most people, our DVD of the week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you can tell by the way he flaps his hands. He's a critic man, li- likes post-punk bands. Skiffle loud and bitter warm, be nearly shot. He hates popcorn, but it's all right, it's OK. DVD of the week is on its way when we try to understand which films are good and which are bland. So, your choice, please, and your prediction for Mark's. Anyway. Top work, Simon Paul. Top work. Never mind him. How about me? I had to read it out. Yeah, but he wrote it. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, Neil Dent says, never any other than a specky Dodge brother on fire... Oh, this is still in this 
Spirit of the Bee Gees. Never any other than a Specky Dodge brother on Five Live, on Five Live. Quentin gets him aching and Michael gets him shaking on Five Live, Five Live. It's a little bit of staying alive. Very good. Yeah. Uh, then we give up. Then we give up. Jonathan Croft, my pick would be Man with a Movie Camera, simply because it's the greatest single edited film of all time. Mike Everest says, I remember watching Saturday Night Fever for the first time when I was 18 on TV. It was the original rated X version. Blew me away. I was expecting a cheery film about disco dancing. What I got was a blistering social commentary about a crushing desire to fit in. Outstanding film and outstanding soundtrack. Craig Alexander says, Mark's going to go for personal shopper. This is a bit of a guess, as Robbie was on when it came out and because it didn't do so well at the box office, we never got to hear Mark's views. I did like it very much. I thought Uh, she was great. I thought it was better... It was better when the supernatural stuff was implied. And Stephen Rawlinson says, I'll choose Cronenberg's shivers so I can relive my teenage VHS years of, ooh, yuck, that's gross. <laughs> Wind it back. But Mark will go for a quiet passion because, you know, he loves a bit of Terence Davis. So what is our DVD of the week? It is a joint DVD pick, and I'm surprised everybody wasn't screaming this from the hilltops. A quiet passion, obviously Terence Davis, and The Leveling, which is the uh, debut feature... Um, from Hope Dixon Leach, which is just wonderful. Both of those are, you know, low-key gems, and I think they're both fabulous by directors that I admire enormously, and they are both worthy of your attention. They're both really, really good. So, Joint, A Quiet Passion by Terence Davis and The Leveling by Hope Dixon Leach. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being on my show. It's been good to have you back. And what's that look mean? Oh, I know precisely what that look means. Can you remember what time we're on next week? Um, I did mention it a while back. Have you remembered? Okay. Uh, three till four. No. From? No. No. Uh, Twelve till one. No. No, okay. Don't don't prompt me. One till two. Yes, one till two. So not to prompt you. So yes, one till two. No, but agree when I'm right. One okay. till two from Millbank. Our Westminster studios. And who's our special guest? Me. And? Um, oh, Christopher Nolan. Someone said that to you. No, no, they didn't. They didn't. They absolutely didn't. They just let me hang there. They don't care. That's they tell true. you because it's the way it's meant to work is that you look clever and I look stupid. So anyway, yes, yeah, so not the podcasters <laughs> care what time it goes out. So it's one till two next week. Uh, but the fact that Christopher Nolan is back on the show uh, is a good thing. It's a prereq with Christopher Nolan, right? It is a prereq. You've already done it. I have seen Dunkirk and I have seen Christopher Nolan. I have signed a form saying that I can't say anything. However, I'm going to say it's a masterpiece. There you go. What, the interview? The interview is, is a masterpiece. Is a masterpiece, and you can see the interview and listen to the interview in IMAX widescreen. Fantastic, seventy mil uh, interview. Is it an arc de triomphe? Absolutely, all the way through. <laughs> okay. Although I, whether the French like it quite as much as we will, who knows? Yes, the resistance. You're just saying that to try and impress our consul general. They don't speak French in Boston. The Do French consul general does. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Boom. <All right. laughs> Very good. There we are. And that's why you're consul general.